Well, greetings, church family. I wish that I could be here with you in person, but here I am on video. I do believe that God's spirit was poured out at camp meeting, and I believe his spirit came back with me. But sadly, something else came back with me, and so I tested positive for COVID, and that's why I'm recording this here. As you can see, I don't really feel too bad. I believe that since I got the vaccine that it wasn't so bad. It was really felt like a moderate cold. So I was sick for a few days and I'm feeling much better. But to keep you all safe, I didn't want to be around you Sabbath morning. And as much as I want to spread the love of Jesus with you, I do not want to spread this virus. So here I am. We're going to do something a little bit differently, but um, I, I felt like recording it here in the church building for you to watch would be a little bit better than if I was, say, recording this from my living room and streaming it there. So today's sermon is entitled Identity, Identity Rooted in Christ. And I'm really excited about this sermon. I was excited once again to preach it in person, but I'm glad that I'm at least able to deliver it in this format. And, you know, I'm a big fan of the writings of Paul. I feel that he asked good questions and also gave good answers. And he was good at giving illustrations as well. He was able to view the full picture, get, get the whole view, yet also magnify, zoom in on certain particulars as needed. It, it was a gift that he had. And he knew what it was like to work against God. And then after he met Jesus, he was thankful for the opportunity to be able to then work for him. So he worked against God for many years, and then he worked for him. And it's clear in his writings that he loved Jesus, that he was grateful to Jesus. And one of his smaller epistles that packs a powerful punch is the book of Ephesians. Ephesians, not a big book, but a powerful book. And Paul writes this letter while he was imprisoned. He was in jail. He couldn't go out but he kept working for the Lord. And so while he was in prison, he wrote this letter. And I believe that the main thrust of this letter was to show what the Christian spiritual walk looks like. But he goes about showing it in an interesting way. Paul does not get into practical application until chapter four. Chapter four. Now, just as a reminder, there weren't actually chapter divisions within Paul's letters. There are no chapter divisions, verse divisions within the Koine Greek in which this was written. They were added after the fact, but we still have Paul waiting until about halfway through this letter, this epistle, to get to the practical application. And now, for those of you that are familiar with Paul, you realize that this is not typical Paul. He tends to get to the point rather quickly, 
and then spends the rest of the letter expounding upon that point and giving numerous illustrations along the way to make sure that it's clear, to make sure that it sticks, that his hearers, that his readers understood what he was saying. Yet that isn't what we find in his letter to the Christians that were living in Ephesus. So this begs the question, is there another point Paul is trying to make besides practical application? So let's back up a bit. The Apostle Paul writes a letter to his friends and fellow Christians in the city of Ephesus. And for the first half of the letter, he doesn't tell them anything that they should do, that they should be doing. He simply tells them who they are. He tells them who they are. He says they are blessed, adopted, and redeemed. He says they are forgiven, included, and marked. He says that they are sealed, alive, and raised up. And he goes on and on. Announcing who they are and what God has done for them and how his spirit dwells in their midst. And within them. Now, many of the Jews, they'd resonate with these words. They would have known many of these things already. They were God's chosen people, right? All throughout the entirety of the Old Testament period. But Paul was not just reiterating this for the Jewish Christians, he wanted to make sure that the Gentile believers also knew that he was speaking about them too. They were included in these words. They were included in this letter. And he makes this comment in chapter three, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. That's Ephesians chapter three and verse six. Paul here is talking to all of the Christian believers in Ephesus. He is speaking to those with a Jewish background, but he's also speaking to those with a Gentile background. This echoes his same sentiments from his letter to the Galatians when he stated very clearly, very boldly, that there is no Jew or Greek. We are all one. In Christ. And for those of you taking notes, whether in the sanctuary, whether watching at home, that comes from Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28. So throughout the first half of his letter to the Ephesians, he keeps telling them who they are and what's been done for them. And then finally, in chapter 4, he begins to tell them what it practically looks like for them to live out this new reality in everyday life. First, he tells them who they are. Then, he tells them what to do. Why? 
Why, Paul? Because the gospel message is first and foremost an announcement of who you are. It's an announcement of who you are, dear Christian. It's about your identity, about the new word that has been spoken about you and the love that has always been yours, always been yours. Now, as Christians, we realize that God loves us, right? He, he loves us so much that he was willing to die for us. That's the love of God that knows no bounds. It has no depths. It can never run out. God cares about you so much that he was willing to leave his position up in heaven on his throne and to come down and to become a lonely human, a lonely man in this sinful world that we are still currently living in. God places so much value upon you, brothers and sisters, that he was willing to pay the ultimate price. This price wasn't too high to him. I believe that this is Paul's way of waging a premeditated war against legalism, against a works-based religion, a works-based mindset. I believe that he also hints at this in chapter 2. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So when we accept Christ, we become a new creation. Once again, for those of you keeping notes, that's 2 Corinthians 5.17. And one of our purposes as this new creation is to manifest good works. To manifest good works. But if you start, if you begin with instructions and commands, people might be mistaken into thinking that God loves us because of what we do or how religious or how moral or how good we are. That's not the gospel. Gospel is the announcement of who God insists you are. You're a child of God not because of how great you are, but because God has all kinds of children and you are one of them. That's good news. So Paul here, he hints at good works, but he doesn't go into the application until he makes sure that the Ephesians know their identity, know who they are in Christ. A Christian's identity is rooted in Christ, not in his or her good works. A Christian's value is rooted in the price that Christ places upon them. Our value and identity in Christ comes first and foremost. Part of appreciating your new identity also comes from remembering your old identity, right? As Paul gets into the meat of his letter, he takes a moment, he pauses in chapter 5 to remind the Ephesian Christians of who they once were 
and who they are now. Ephesians 5, 8, it says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. I love that. I love that. You once were, but now you are. He's very confident in that statement. And I believe that confidence comes from the fact that he's rooted in Christ. Christ is his firm foundation. You know, last week at camp meeting with those primary kiddos, Myself and Sarah Shepard and Norma Shepard, we, we talked a lot with these kids up front. And, you know, we, we had fun with them and we did crafts and different activities. But we also, we got spiritual with them. And we were talking a lot about Jesus and digging deeper into God's word. And one of the days we focus on the fact that Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is that firm foundation that everything else is built upon. And I was explaining to these kids what a foundation was and talking to them about buildings, you know, and and how they have to have this firm foundation. And I was talking about the church. You know, Christ has tasked all of us to help build his church. And this church isn't just a building. No, it's all of the believers throughout the world. The church is big. And something that big needs a strong, firm foundation. And the strongest, most firm foundation that we have is in Christ. Back to Paul. You were once, but now you are. Those are preaching words. As one of my old professors used to say, Pastor Kilgore, those words will preach. There's a sermon just right here in that mindset. Those words, they bring thankfulness to the believer, but they also give hope. To the lost. Whew. Thankfulness to the believer, hope to the lost. When we as believers remember how lost and unworthy we were, but now see that we are found, loved, and transformed, it causes us to fall more in love with God. When a lost person remembers, what you, dear friend, once were, what they now are, and sees the change in you. They remember who you used to be. They remember how you used to talk. They remember how you used to treat people, but now there's something different. Now there's been a change. It gives them hope that God will also accept them and not leave them as they are, but change them too. That builds up hope in a person's heart. The love and power of God can change them. Never feel like you have to hide who you once were. You don't want to act that way, but you don't have to hide the truth of the past either because it's a powerful testament to God's grace, God's forgiveness, God's love, and his transforming power in your life. Don't hide your past. So Paul, he knew that if you keep telling people who they are, 
who their best selves are, if you keep reminding them of their true identity, there's a good chance that they will then figure out what to do. Good works flow from what God does in us rather than God's work in us flowing from good works. I'm going to say that again just to make sure you catch that. Good works flow from what God does in us rather than God's work in us flowing from good works. You remember God redeemed Israel from Egypt before giving the Ten Commandments to Moses. And he did not choose them because of their righteousness. Those of you keeping notes, Deuteronomy 9, 5, and 6. Deuteronomy 9, 5, and 6 makes that abundantly clear. It was always God's purpose for good works to flow from his grace, even if Israel did not always grasp that point. To help the Ephesian Christians see this more clearly, Paul spent half of his letter reiterating their identity. When you know who you are in Christ, you will know what to do for Christ. When you know who you are in Christ, you will know what to do for Christ. Now, that leaves us with another question, doesn't it? I believe that Paul wrote this letter to Christians living in Ephesus in the first century. I believe that. But I also believe that God's Spirit is speaking through this letter to us, you and me as Christians living in Oklahoma in the 21st century. So, do you, dear friends, do you, dear Christian, do you, dear brother and sister in Christ, know who you are in him? Do you know who you are in Christ? Members and guests of the Edmund Seventh-day Adventist Church, do you know who you are in Jesus? That's my question. Because this answer, this knowledge, it's life-changing. It's life-changing. It will change the way you talk, the way you think, and the way you live. Do you know who you are in Christ? I'm here today to echo Paul and to tell you that you are blessed, you are adopted, you are redeemed. You are forgiven, you are included, you are marked. Dear friends, you are sealed, you are alive, and you are raised up in Christ, all because of Jesus. That is your identity. That's our identity. And it's a good identity to have. That is how Christ sees you, dear friends. That is how Christ describes you. He is speaking to you 
And when God speaks, those words become reality. You were once bringing darkness into the world, but now you are reflecting light. You were once lost, but now you're found. You were once a child of Satan, but now you are a child of God. Now, what are you going to do about it? That's the question here. What are you going to do about it? Will you join me, dear friends, in making a commitment with God? Doesn't matter if you are in the sanctuary. Doesn't matter if you're in your bedroom or your living room or you're listening through your phone in the car. Will you join me in making a commitment to God? If you are, then I'm just going to ask you to repeat these words after me. I'm going to say a few words and give you the opportunity to repeat them, and then I'll go on, okay? So repeat these words after me. Dear God, I thank you for Jesus. I believe my identity is rooted in him. I ask that you fill me with the Holy Spirit and change me from the inside out. I ask that you produce good works in my life through your Spirit. Lord, help me to remember to give credit where credit is due. When I do good works, may I always give you the credit. May my life be the type of living sacrifice Mentioned in Ephesians 5.2. Amen. In closing, let me read those words from Ephesians 5.2. They say, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us in offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling aroma. All that being said, I realize that this is our fill the baptistry Sabbath. And I mentioned before, I'd mentioned in the past that I wanted to fill that water in that tank, whether we had a baptism today or not. But after some prayer and discussion with a few others, I feel that it's probably more in line with being a good steward to not needlessly waste so much water for a simple illustration. Yet, while I haven't filled the baptistry, I still want us to be mindful of what it represents, okay? As Christians, Jesus has called all of us to baptize in his name. A few months back, you might remember that I tasked each one of you, each one of you in the sanctuary, each one of you watching at home, 
with helping to aid me in bringing people to Christ. Dear friends, I can't do this on my own. I can't do it alone. You all have friends and acquaintances that you know need to come to Jesus. They need to know Jesus. And I'll let you know right now, praise God, that I'm currently studying with two individuals and they are preparing for baptism very soon. But I'm still calling on each one of you, dear friends, to make connections with others and then to connect them with Jesus. I'm here to assist. I'm here to assist when I can. But the pastor can't give all the Bible studies. The pastor can't make all the connections. The pastor can't have all the conversations. Do you hear me, dear friends? Tell people the good news of Jesus and who they are in him. Show them who you are, who, you, who your identity is in Christ. Connect them with this church family. Let's work together, right, as a family, as a team. Let's work together to make sure that we aren't just coming together and playing church, but that we are actively engaged in being the hands and feet of Jesus. Amen? I hope that that's your desire. I hope that's your wish. And now I hope that you will bow your heads and pray with me. Lord, we thank you for hearing and sealing our commitments to you. As we read Ephesians 5, 2, we ask that you would not only help us to understand its meaning, but that you would also help it to be our experience, dear Lord. We pray that you would direct our paths and bring us into connection with others who need to know you. May we follow Jesus' call and baptize new believers. And we ask it all in his name. Amen and amen.